0: Well, let's get ready to get into the Word together today, amen? Amen. Amen. I'm glad two of you are excited. Anybody else want to join us, we'll let you in. Hey, get your Bible out. Let's go to Luke chapter 2. This is where we have launched from the last two Sundays, and I want to start right there again. Luke's Gospel chapter 2. As we get ready to dig into this word today, in case you were not here for those services, let me just give you a little bit of context. Jesus is 12 years old. This little picture is the only window we see into the adolescent years of our Savior. And so we really cherish every word in the story in this moment because between the Christmas story when he's just a little baby, and then about two years old when the wise men show up, and then 30 years old when he starts his ministry... All we know about the years between there happened right here in Luke chapter 2. And there's one verse that we've used as as an outline uh, for what we believe God wants to say to us as a church this year. And it's Luke 2, 52. That verse says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and in favor with men. And we believe as God establishes our steps in 2018, we're going to be established in all four of those areas of our lives, but I want to back up a little bit here this morning to a verse uh, a little bit earlier in the text, and what has happened is Jesus was there in the city with his parents to celebrate uh, the festival. They left with all the other people making pilgrimage back towards their hometown, but it wasn't until a day and a half after they left that his parents, Mary and Joseph, realized Jesus wasn't with them. And so they go back to the city, they're frantic, they're looking for Jesus, this 12-year-old son of theirs, and they can't find him, they don't know where he's at. And then all of a sudden, they find him, he's in the temple. He's talking to the teachers and the scribes, he's asking questions, he's astounding people with his grasp of the Bible, even at 12 years old. And when he sees his parents, look at verse 49, he says, why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now, I love that verse. Another translation says it this way. Jesus says, didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? And honestly, I like that translation a little bit more because it's less about the location and the place and more about the purpose. He said, I, I'm not just supposed to be in his house. I'm supposed to be about his business. But what those two translations of that same verse communicate to us is something that we all know about ourselves already, and that is that the places you pursue reveal your purpose. If I spend all of my time uh, on the golf course and never at the church, you might start to question how committed I am to my purpose. But if you see Tiger Woods at the golf course every day, now, that makes sense because the place he he goes after is reflective of his purpose. You understand what I'm saying? So this story, Jesus says, I had to be in my father's house. I had to be about my father's business. Jesus said it this way at another time. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, it's not just about our our physical presence and where we invest our time. It's also about our resources, where we invest our finances. The things you invest in reveal what matters most to you. And so we get this little window right here into the life of Jesus. And essentially what Jesus is saying right now is that my father's presence is my priority because his eyes were fixed on God's purpose for his life. Now, as, as we move into this text a little bit today, I'm going to take you to a lot of different stories, but I want you to see first this pattern that's in the life of Jesus, because it is a pattern. It's not just something that happened when he was 12 years old. It's not just something that he did, you know, years later when he was in the ministry. Especially when you look at Luke's gospel, you can see that Jesus was committed to the house of God in Luke chapter 2. And then when you move on to Luke chapter 4, we get a picture of Jesus. Again, this is 18 years later. He's 30 years old. He's getting ready to launch his ministry now. And here's what the Bible says in Luke 4, verse 16. It says, he went to Nazareth, his hometown, where he had been brought up. <clears throat> and the Sabbath, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. You see that? As was his his custom. In other words, this was not an exceptional moment. This was normal. Nobody was shocked to see Jesus walk into church that day. In Mark's gospel, Mark tells us in chapter 1 and verse 35 that very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, and he went off to a solitary place where he could pray. Even when Jesus was Surrounded by people that were that were just wanting to touch him mark chapter 6 says that as many people as touched jesus They were made whole and he couldn't get even a break to share a bite to eat with his disciples In the middle of the height of his popularity and ministry The bible tells us that jesus sent his disciples to the other side of the boat uh, Other side of the sea. He said you need to go. You need to get some rest You go over there and jesus closed down the meeting And the Bible says in Mark 6, 46, after leaving them, he, Jesus, went up on a mountainside to pray. Here's what I want you to get today. Jesus was perfect. He never sinned. How many of you understand? The only thing that separates us from God is sin. And so Jesus walked in perfect fellowship with God, more than any other human that has ever lived and has ever walked the face of the earth, Jesus had a perfect relationship with God. How many of you would agree with that? Amen. And yet we see over and over and over again that Jesus had to carve out time in his schedule. He had to push away from the crowds. He had to be intentional in his habits and in his patterns. Why? Jesus wanted to pursue God's presence with his life. It it wasn't enough to be sinless. You would think if we could get to that level, everything would be good. No, even for a sinless man, he needed to carve out time. He needed to be in God's presence. And I want to challenge you today, in this this year of getting established in Christ, if you need a title, here it is. I want to talk to you today about establishing the altar. Establishing the altar. Now, let me give you a definition so you understand. When I'm talking about an altar, I'm not just talking about Um, an article from the Old Testament. And I'm not necessarily just talking about this area in the front of our church that we call the altar. But as I read the Bible, in the Old Testament, over and over again, we see that the altar was the place where heaven touched earth. I wanna talk to you today about establishing that place, that moment in your life, the place where heaven comes down and touches earth, and God moves in your life. Can I tell you today that as significant as the altar was in the Old Testament, it's still significant today. Now, in the Old Testament, it was significant because it was the the center of all the worship. They had to bring the sacrifice to the altar, and unless there was a sacrifice on the altar, the people couldn't approach God. So everything centered around the altar. Thank God we don't live in the Old Covenant anymore. Thank God you didn't have to wait for me to to kill something and and burn something before you could come and worship God this morning. But I'm going to tell you, it's a mistake to believe that the altar is not still a critical part in the life of a believer. God moves in the altars. You know, I I, I think about my own life. I can remember as a kid coming to the altar at church. I can remember raising my hand and, and asking Jesus into my heart. As a little kid in kids' church and, and then coming down and finding a place to kneel down. How many of you had that moment as, as a child? How many of you had a whole bunch like I did? <laughs> I got saved like every weekend, right? Before I figured out that I had a little bit of security in Jesus. Like every time they gave the altar call, I was like, did I sin? Yep, I sinned. <laughs> Hands up. But you know what? Even in my immaturity, time and time again, something was solidified in my heart. I knew out of habit, out of routine, I knew that the altar was a place where I could meet God. I knew the altar was a place where my sins could be forgiven, where things could be made right again. I knew as a child that I was always welcome at the altar. I think back to when I was seven years old. My family, we went on a a missions trip to Mexico, and my dad was preaching a revival there. and, And one night of this crusade, he's preaching with a translator, and the the worship team is up there singing. Of course, it's all in Spanish. I don't speak Spanish, and, and I'm just standing on the front row while the worship team is singing this song, and all of a sudden, the power of God just, it just settled on me. I, I don't know how else to explain it to you, except that it was like Cool water that just from the top of my head to the soles of my feet, it just began to saturate my life. And right there as a seven-year-old boy, I just lifted my hands, and I began to speak in new tongues. God baptized me in the Holy Spirit in an altar. And my life has been forever changed. I can remember in 2003, I took a bunch of teenagers up to the uh, youth camp at Bajorno Conference Center in Carlisle. I was a youth pastor at the time, and in my heart, I was wrestling with direction and God's will for my life. I could take you to the spot on the carpet where I was standing in 2003. I think the worship team from Valley Forge was singing I Can Only Imagine. We hadn't wore that song out entirely yet, and so it was good. And and I was worshiping God, and all of a sudden, God, he just brought clarity. I can't, I can't explain it to you well enough, but it, it's almost like I, just, I didn't know what the future held. I wasn't sure. I was praying about a few things, and then God just spoke a word to me right then, and I knew. I knew that God was calling me to take my family from where we lived in Marietta and move to Dallas, Texas to join a staff. And, and we spent 10 years down there serving the will of God, but we, fi- we figured it out in the altar. We figured it out in the altar. I can remember a powerful altar experience in 1998. It was September 19th, and I stood in the altar in front of my pastor next to a beautiful bride. We made a covenant with God in the altar. And I looked at her, and I told her, I will, I will love you, have you, hold you in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, richer or poorer. And we've seen about all those almost 20 years later, but I'm telling you what, the covenant's still alive and well because it was more than just a promise from a person. God met us in the altar and he established the marriage covenant. I thought I'd get some more amens from the marriage folks on that one. You had some free brownie points, guys. They were on the low-hanging vine. That was easy for you. You missed your moment on that one. (laughs) I'm telling you today, what I'm trying to say to you is that the altar is a place where God moves in our lives. He gives us direction. And all these moments that I just shared, they happen in an altar. I feel like I'm on an assignment today from heaven as I was praying about this week, trying to get clarity. I'm, I'm, I'm compiling this message And God, what do you want to say? And here's what the Holy Spirit spoke to me. He said, I want you to be my advocate for the altar. I want to advocate for the altar today, and again, not just about this space in the front of the church, though I think this is a great space to come and meet with God. I'm talking about being intentional about the place and the purpose that God has for your life, and if you need a motivation today to come to the altar, I want to give you three of them, three reasons that you ought to be intentional about having an altar, establishing an altar. Number one, it's a place of praise. It's a place of praise. Listen, a lot of people, they only come to an altar. They only raise their hand in response to a message. They only cry out to God in prayer. When they're in a crisis, when it feels like you know, life is coming unraveled and they don't know which way is up, and they, they don't know what to do. I mean, they just say, now I need God, and they respond and they call on God. But can I tell you, the first altar that we see in the Word of God that's mentioned specifically as an altar of worship. It's, it's built by Noah in Genesis chapter eight. And it's an altar, not because not he needs forgiveness. It's not an altar because he's asking God for something. It's an altar of praise. Now, I'm sure there were altars that were built before this moment, but we don't have any of them in scripture that are spoken of specifically until after Noah and his family and all the animals step off of the ark. And it's in that moment, listen to this verse, Genesis chapter eight, verse 20. It says, then Noah built an an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed a burnt offering on it. I want you to think about the motivation for this moment. I mean, Noah's just survived the flood. He recognized in this moment that, that, that God was so frustrated with, with humanity. He was so, so disappointed in, in where things had gone and the heart of men had become so wicked that God said, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna hit the factory reset button. We're gonna just start this whole thing over. I'm saving the animals and I'm saving Noah's family. And when Noah came out of that salvation ark, the most appropriate thing for him to do in that moment was to begin to build an altar an altar of worship. He built an altar to God to acknowledge the fact that God had been faithful, that God had saved him. Can I tell you today, church, that is exactly what Romans 12:1 tells us we're supposed to do. Paul, writing to Christians that he's never laid eyes on yet in Rome, says these words. He said, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, That's important, what he's saying in light of what God has done for you. Here's the motivation. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. In view of that, in view of the mercy of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This, he says, is your proper, your true and proper worship. I'm going to tell you, the altar is a place of praise. The Bible describes for us in Hebrews chapter 13 what it looks like to offer God a sacrifice of praise. It says in verse 15 and 16, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. That's what we were doing earlier in the service, lifting our voices together. What were we doing? We were bringing an offering, the fruit of our lips, the sacrifice of praise. But it doesn't stop there. Look at the next verse. He said, and do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. There's three, there's three postures of worship right here in this moment. The first is, is lifting up our voices, lifting up our hearts to God and singing. And, and often when we talk about worship, this is the posture that we envision, looking up toward heaven. But he said, that's just one. That's just one way to be a living sacrifice. The second one is to do good to others. And that's not hands extended up. That's hands extended out. That's service. That's helping others. And then the third picture, he says, and, and share with others. That's when we reach out and take the hand of people beside us, those that are going on the journey with us. He says, this is what it means to, to offer a living sacrifice of praise to God. Yes, it's the fruit of lips that praise his name, but it's also doing good. It's also sharing with others. The motivation for coming to the altar of praise is simple, he's worthy, that's all the motivation you need, listen, if God never does another thing for you, for as long as you live, you ought to get up every day, and build an altar of worship, you ought to praise God, you ought to give him thanks, because he's good, because he's worthy, because he saved you, he's worthy, let me tell you about the second altar, the second altar is a place of repentance, Yes, it's a place of praise, but it's also, it's also a place of repentance. And if the motivation to come to an altar of praise is that he is worthy, I'm going to tell you the motivation to come to an altar of repentance is I am unworthy. I'm unworthy. You might not know it, but I'm speaking for you too. We're unworthy. We don't deserve all of God's goodness in our life, and that ought to motivate us to come to the altar of repentance. Go with me to 2 Samuel, Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 24. I want you to see something here. (coughs) This is a moment where David is king in Israel. And he goes out and he calls for a census of all the fighting men. In Israel and in Judah. And, and he, it's a sin against God because it's a, it's a lack of faith. In him counting the men, it's like he's wanting to make sure that he has the strength and he has the ability to, to protect the city and to extend the kingdom when God is asking him to trust in him. And so the Lord, through a prophet, comes to him and, and tells him, Look, David, you've sinned against God. There's gonna be punishment for the sin. And God gives him three options. I don't know if your parents ever did this to you when you were a kid. You got to pick your poison. But man, this would be terrible. God says there's going to be punishment. You can have three years of famine. You can have three months of being attacked by your enemies, or you can have three days of judgment from God. And David said, "Don't, don't turn me over to my enemies." I don't trust their wicked hearts. I wanna fall on a compassionate God. And so he said, I'll I'll take the three days. And a plague went through the nation and 70,000 people died within that three days. Finally, uh, David (laughs) comes to the place of humility where he recognizes this is on me. This is my fault. I'm the one that sinned against God. And so he does something about it. Look down at verse 21 with me. 2 Samuel 24, verse 21 says, Arana said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. So David comes to the threshing floor, of Arana, And he says, I want to buy this from you. I want to make an offering to God. I, I need to repent of my sin. And Arana says, listen, king, you, what's mine is yours. You don't have to buy it. I'll give it to you. In fact, I'll give you the wood for the fire. I'll give you the sacrifice. I'm going to give it all to you because you're the king. And the king said, no, I will not make a sacrifice to my God that cost me nothing. That's the heart of repentance. This was not just some, some religious ritual. This was not somebody just going through the motions saying, oh, okay, well, I guess we're going to go to the altar. No. David said, I'm going to make a sacrifice. I want to invest in this moment, in this encounter. I need God to show up. I need God to know I'm all in. So I'm pursuing this altar with my time, with my resources, with my finances. I want God to meet me in this moment. And the Bible says that he builds this altar and he makes this sacrifice to God. Now look with me down at verse 25. It says David, David built an altar. He built an altar to the Lord, and there he sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then, that's an important word. Then the Lord answered his prayer. God responds at the altar. When we come with a broken and a contrite heart and when we invest ourselves and fall on his mercy the way David fell on his mercy, God will respond to you in the altar. And sometimes God will use people, just like he used the prophet Gad to communicate to David that there was sin in his life, God will use people to point it out to you. God will will use moments like this. He'll use sermons like this. He'll use a coworker or a spouse or someone else to point out the things in your life. But listen, them noticing it isn't enough. The truth coming out isn't enough. There's got to be a moment where you acknowledge your own sin before God. There's got to be a moment where you repent of sin at an altar. Let me just give you a practical word of advice today. Wisdom would speak to us today and say, keep short accounts with God. What I mean by that is don't, don't wait. Don't let the sin pile up in your life. Don't let the, the thing that's holding you back or that's, that's pressing you down become so overbearing and so heavy in your life that, that you, you don't know how to come out of it. Keep short accounts with God. If you sin, be quick to repent. Be quick to build an altar. If you blow it tomorrow, don't wait till next Sunday. Build an altar before God. Don't let too much space come between your altars. Let me illustrate it like this. Now, in a few weeks, I'm gonna be going up to the Adirondacks in upstate New York. I'm gonna be doing some winter mountaineering up there. I've done this the last several years. and, And there's something that's just... Fascinating to me when we get up to the mountain peaks in the middle of winter Uh, It's just uh, it's it's like stepping into another world In fact, I have a picture. I want to show you this is (laughs) this was last year now. I know you can't read that sign from here But let me read it to you. It says stop The area ahead has the worst weather in america Many have died there from exposure even in the summer Turn back now if weather is bad. (laughs) Isn't that a great welcome sign to the white? That's the sign you read right before you step into the alpine zone. Once you get up above the tree line and there's nothing to protect you from the elements and the wind starts howling and you got to put on all the gear and the goggles and the mask and protect your skin so you don't get frostbite from contact. And when you're up there in those elements, there's one thing that you're looking for. Because you can't see the trail because of the snow, and there's no trees. You're looking for the cairns. Have you seen those? I I, I got a picture here of one of my friends hiking in front of me. He's walking towards the cairn. It's that tall pile of rocks to his left. And and people have gone before, and they've built up these piles of rocks. And and I can't help, whenever I see them, it it just looks like an Old Testament altar to me. And I'm telling you, you get into trouble real quick if you lose sight of the next Karen. You can get turned around up there. And that's the way it is spiritually speaking for a lot of us. If we let too much space come between us and our next altar, we lose our direction. I mean, we can pray, God, establish my steps, establish my steps, but we need to be looking for the next altar. We need to be looking for the next moment where we can come back to center with Christ and we can know that we have this... This powerful connection to the Father, the same one that Jesus desired and sought in his life, you and I need it in ours. And again, it's more than just coming on a Sunday to a place of prayer. It's about about finding the places and the spaces throughout your week that you can build into an encounter with God. You know, when, when I read through all the altars in the Old Testament that men and women built, you know what I noticed? When they wanted to build an altar to God, they built it right where they were standing. In other words, you don't read in Scripture somebody that says, we're going to build an altar. But, you know, the stones, they're really, they're really nice stones in that town 30 miles back. Let's go back there and get some stones, and we'll come up here, and we'll build the altar. No, what they did is they built the altar right where the stones were. Let let me tell you what that looks like in your life. See, right now, you've got moments in your life. You've got margin in your life. You've got some chunks of time that are more conducive for an encounter with God than other times are. Those are the moments where you need to build your altar. I can tell you, in my house, (coughs) there's not too many altars being built between 3.30 and 4.30 in the afternoon. Because I got three kids in school, and they come in the door, and backpacks get dropped, and homework comes out, and stories start flying, and we're moving in a thousand different directions. We're getting an afternoon snack, we're trying to help with homework. I can tell you, nobody's having intimacy with Jesus in that hour. There's no stones there. But listen, if you're a person that you like to get up early in the morning and enjoy a cup of coffee before the sun comes up, you've got some time to yourself, that's where you need to build an altar. If you're an an evening person and you like to sit up and read a good book at night, there's enough enough material there to work with in your life. You can build an altar to God. I I read an interesting story recently about the University of Texas. They were expanding their campus, and they would build a new building, and they would lay a sidewalk, and then they'd open the building, and then they noticed that none of the students would actually use the new sidewalk. So they got smart about it. Next time they built a building, they didn't pour the sidewalk. They just built the building. They opened the building, and they paid attention to where the students walked. And then they built the sidewalk on the footpaths. And I tell you, that's good practical advice. When it comes to finding time, and space and places to go after the heart of God, you need to build the sidewalks on the footpaths. Don't don't work against yourself. You don't have to go out of your way to meet with God. God went out of his way to meet with you. He'll meet you if you'll make time. Some of you, you need to build an altar on your morning commute. You need to put on your audio Bible and and just, you know, Quit getting frustrated with all the other drivers and just build an altar 45 miles an hour going down the road, just worshiping God, talking to God, connecting with the Father. We need to build altars so that we don't lose our way. You know, when I'm up there hiking in the mountains, when I get to one of those big Karens, I'm always amazed at them. I know it took a long time to build those things, but no sooner do I take a step away from one, I'm looking for the next one. And that's the way you ought to be in your relationship with God. Now come on, let's be honest. A lot of times we're the exact opposite. We'll we'll come into a, into a service or into maybe even a private devotional time. And, and man, we just meet meet with God. It's like heaven comes down and touches your reality, and you're like, wow, that was so amazing. But then our thought is wow, that was that was great. I'm good for a while. Right? We, we don't get up from the altar looking for the next altar. But if God's going to establish our steps, you've got to walk where the footpaths are. You've got to go from one encounter with God to the next encounter with God. You've got to meet with him. Let me, let me tell you about one more reason, one more motivation for you and I to come to the altar. It's in 1 Kings chapter 18. The altar is a place of proving. It's a place of proving. You may be very familiar with this story. It's, it's an incredible showdown on Mount Carmel between the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And the Bible tells us that this showdown is for nothing less than the hearts of God's people. They had turned away from God. They had turned towards wickedness. And so Elijah, he's, he's, he's fed up. And so he, he, he gives an ultimatum. He draws a line in the sand. And here's what it says in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. It says, Elijah went before all the people and he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, Follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. He, he just said, this, this is it. We're going to make a decision today. And he with, with all the conviction he can muster, he says this, but I have to laugh when I read this verse. Look at the next part. It says, but the people said nothing. What, what a picture of their, their apathy, of their complacency, that he's, he's willing to put God to the test. He said, look, let's build two altars. I'll build an altar to the God of of Israel and you build an altar to Baal, but don't light it on fire. Just build it, just prepare it. Put the sacrifice there. And whoever's God is God. He'll send the fire and he'll consume the sacrifice. But, But the people said, nothing. I feel like I've preached in that church before. You know, he's pouring his heart out like, God's going to do it. God's going to show up. And they're like, crickets. They said nothing. But you know what? Elijah pressed on anyway. You know what he did next? He gave an altar call. He gave an altar call. Look at verse 30. Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. (laughs) They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord. Which had been torn down. I just feel like if if I could muster the spirit of Elijah today, I feel like God wants me to stand in the front of this church and say, Come here to me. As we repair this altar, as we come back to a place where God is gonna encounter us, I wanna tell you the altar is a place of proving. And a lot of times, we don't move out by faith. We don't stretch our faith because we doubt. We don't have the belief that God's gonna come through and God's gonna show up in the moment. But he does, and he does in this story. As you look at verse 36 and 37, Elijah prays this simple prayer. (laughs) Just a simple prayer. He said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Now, the prophets of Baal had spent all day dancing, shouting, singing, rolling on the floor. Cutting themselves, trying to get the attention of Baal. I'm gonna tell you, the altar's not about hype or emotionalism. God's looking at your heart. And Elijah just prays a prayer. And the Bible says in the next verse, verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and it also licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Listen, you might be facing an impossible situation today. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I'm telling you, the altar is a place of proving. The altar is a place where God shows up and serves up his miracle-working power in our lives. It's not about outward emotion. It's not about fanaticism, but sometimes we do call for an outward response, Listen, God is not limited geographically. He can touch you in the back row as much as he can touch you in the altar. I don't ask people sometimes to raise their hand because God needs to see your hand. I ask you to raise your hand because you need to take a step of faith. We ask you to come to the altar because you need to physically move towards, with expectation, a moment with God. The altar is a place of proving. And God is still moving in altars today I, I was preparing <laughs> this message this week and i just love the way the holy spirit works my wife sent me a link to an article that posted on lancaster online this week she thought it was funny <coughs> she didn't know what i was writing at the time but i got the article and here's the headline this was this week in lancaster online fist bumps and elbow bumps replace shaking hands as churches react to flu season. <laughs> I read that I read that verse, and I read the article. And, and, and I know they're just being cautious. You know, we don't we don't want to be foolish. But when I read that article, the church reacts to flu season. We don't want to shake hands anymore. We don't want to hug necks. We're gonna fist bump. We're going to elbow bump. We'll bump hips or something, but we don't want to spread any germs. When I read that article, a verse of Scripture, just, it just rose up in me. I grabbed my Bible. I opened it up to make sure it said what I thought it said. Sure enough, this was what Jesus promised the church in Mark 16, 17, and 18. He said, and these signs shall follow those that believe in my name. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They'll place their hands on sick people and they will get well. That's that's the church that Jesus is describing. That's, That's who we are as the people of God. We're supposed to be able to lay hands on the sick people and they get well. But somehow, somewhere along the way, too many of us have believed this lie that's been spawned from the pit of hell that says that as the church gets older, it's supposed to get weaker, that maybe we needed power in the first century, but now we have the word and so knowledge has replaced power. I'm going to tell you, that's a lie from the devil. Oh, we don't need to pray for the sick anymore. We'll just use hand sanitizer, (laughs) right? I mean, we, we, don't need to, we don't need to ask for miracles anymore. Why do you need a miracle? I mean, I've got an HMO. I've got PPOs. I've got government healthcare subsidies. I, I got plenty. I mean, why do we need miracles? Did you know that 75 to 90% of the Pentecostal church in the world reports that they actively see the miraculous in their lives and ministries? 75 to 80, 90%. You know, it's really only here in North America that the Pentecostal church doesn't see the miraculous, and we call that normal. Somehow, we've been inoculated to the power of the gospel. We've, we've bought into some weak word only, and thank God for the word, but there's power attached to it. We've believed into this word only system that God doesn't move mightily anymore, that he doesn't perform miracles, signs, and wonders I'm going to tell you today, we need to repent of that way of thinking. We need to reject that mentality that God is not more than able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than you could think, ask, or imagine. God proves himself in the altar. Amen. I'm going to tell you, he wants to prove himself in your life. I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come back as we get ready to end this service today. I want to challenge you to to take a step towards God's presence. Now listen, let me just say right up front, we don't keep score in this church by how many people raise their hand or how many people come to the altar, because the truth is, as much as that might make us feel good about ourselves, God's looking at your heart. And I've been in church long enough to know plenty of people can shout and dance and run in the altars and speak in tongues, and they can live like the devil. So your outward expression is nothing more than an outward expression if it's not tethered to a heart of sincerity. I'm telling you, sometimes you, not God, you need to step out from where you are and come to a place for a purpose. In the same way that Jesus set himself apart to meet with God, you need to set yourself apart today and throughout this week and say, God, I want, I want to meet you at an altar. I'm going to ask you if you'd stand with me all over this room. And if you'd be so bold and you're physically able, would you just come and, and meet me in the altar today? Would you come and find a place to stand before God? Maybe, maybe you don't have a need in your life to pray for. It. Come to an altar of praise. Come and just say, you know what? God doesn't have to do anything for me. I'm going to go after him because of his goodness. I'm going to seek him because he's been faithful. Maybe you're here today and you're carrying a burden in your life of sin, of shame, of regret. Let this be an altar of repentance today that you can lay it down. Lay it down. Lay it down. Because when we come to this altar of repentance, we don't come to pay for our own sins. We come to receive the payment that Jesus has already made. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what? I need God to show up in my life, in my finances, in my marriage, in my future. There's things I just don't know what the next step is. Like that next Karen on the horizon, God's bringing you to an altar today to bring clarity. He wants to bring clarity. So I'm gonna ask this worship team to sing and I'm gonna get out of the way. And I wanna challenge you to take a few moments and let's lift our voices and let's call on God and believe that he's gonna meet us in this altar today. I wanna just pray God's blessing over your life. Now listen, you've heard the altar call. But the challenge is that you build your own altar. Don't wait till next Sunday to have an experience with God. You will will fall off the path. If you eat once a week, you'll starve to death. It's the same spiritually. We gotta meet with God every day. Build the altar, build the altar. Father, I pray today for your people. God, this would be a moment, Lord, of, of heaven touching earth. This would be a moment, Lord, that catalyzes our heart around the purpose that you've ordained for us. God, for those that lack clarity, God, let today be a day that the clouds are rolled away and we can see with clear vision what you're doing and what you're saying and how you're leading our lives. God, for those that came in here today shackled by a heavy burden, God, I thank you that this is a moment where chains are being broken in Jesus' name, that we are leaving today different than how we came because you met us at an altar. God, for those that have been interceding and and waiting and believing that you would do the impossible, God, today, let something shift spiritually. God, let something shift in the atmosphere. Let this be the moment that we look back on and say it was at that altar on that Sunday at the end of January that God began to turn it for my good. Father, today, establish the altar in our hearts and in our lives. God, this week, May we hear the same Holy Spirit that called us today, calling to us in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening, God, call us back to the altar. And Father, I pray that this week, as we go back to the relationships and the sphere of influence that you've given to us, God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, favor us as we invite people to come back next Sunday. God, as we use this Super Bowl Sunday to leverage the gospel of Jesus Christ, Father, we pray that many would come and that they would come to know you. God bless your people. Favor us this week. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Amen, amen. God bless you today.